Welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Jeremy Moeller. I'm the Residency Program Director at Yale, and I'm doing a a, a solo non-resident podcast uh, this week because we want to uh, get a few extra in at the start of the year. And I am honored to be joined uh, by Dr. Chris Gottschalk, the head of our general neurology and uh, headache division at Yale. Chris is is a good friend and a great teacher and has taught me much about headache management uh, and continues to do so. And today we're going to talk about uh, headache therapy. And specifically, we're going to focus on migraine therapy. There's been a lot of changes in migraine therapy over the last few years, lots of new things to be aware of. And I think lots of new things for residents and students to be aware of as they ex- uh, as they prepare for examinations. I mean, these are uh, ubiquitous therapies. Headache is uh, among the most common neurological diagnoses. And, uh, and these will start showing up on, on examinations. So I think that we need to be prepared for this. We need to have a good handle on some of the basics behind these. I will comment, as, as we always do, that we're not providing medical advice here. Uh, this is an educational podcast that we're uh, specifically targeting residents and medical students. And, uh, and the purpose here is to really provide an overview uh, for uh, guiding uh, additional studying and, and additional learning in the future. So thanks for uh, joining us, Chris. It's my pleasure, Jeremy. And you're very gracious to say all those things. It's an enormous pleasure working with you. And I can't really express how much I appreciate your enthusiasm and support of good understanding of headache medicine, because it is such a common and disabling problem. You know, my my goal has always been to put people like you out of business. I think if we do the fundamentals really well, uh, there are fewer people that end up with much more severe refractory, super refractory chronic headaches. Uh, and I think the fundamentals can really help that. I think that should be the new theme of the American Headache Society. Put us out of business, please. I think we'd all be happy with that. So we're going to review uh, migraine therapy. And I thought the way we would organize this is uh, to talk about acute therapies, so uh, abortive therapy for headache attacks, then to talk about preventative agents, uh, agents that are taken on a regular basis to reduce the frequency and intensity of headaches, and finally to talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, evidence-based interventions uh, that we can use uh, both acutely and, uh, and for preventative purposes, but we'll, we'll start with the acute therapy. So Chris, you've uh, always taught me uh, that the foundation of acute abortive therapy for migraine is some combination of what we often call triple therapy. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, what the sort of components of triple therapy are? Sure. So uh, for me and for us, that that has meant some combination of triptan, of dopamine blocking antiemetic, and of non-steroidal agents. Um, What's clear is from a whole range of clinical trials that each of those has specific anti-migraine effects. When you look at the work of people like Rami Burstein and Dan Levy and others in his group who have so carefully dissected the mechanism of action of each of those on desensitizing trigeminal neurons and their activity, each of them has a differentiable effect on the different phases of sensitization, peripheral and central, which in combination have you know, good evidence to support the idea that they do different things for different components of the, pain, of the pain symptoms in migraine and at different stages. And in combination in clinical practice, they clearly work far better than monotherapy. 
We have some examples that show combinations of, say, any two of those. So, for example, the trials of uh, what used to be called Treximet of a proprietary formulation of sumatriptan and naproxen in a rapidly dissolving tablet, that that tablet clearly outperforms either oral sumatriptan or oral NSAID. So lending some support to the idea that combination therapy is superior. We have randomized trials in emergency rooms showing that IV metoclopramide outperforms even IV NSAID, even IV valproic acid or subcutaneous tryptan. So there are different examples showing the superiority of either combinations of these or individual ones. And so in practice, there's been the notion for a while that combining them either for single acute attacks or sometimes for prolonged refractory attacks in a kind of pulsed manner uh, is, is the route to success. And I have to say that that's been, that's been my mantra for a long time. I basically instruct all patients to start from the top and say, try treating your attacks routinely with any of these agents or with all of these agents once you have established for yourself how effective that combination can be, then you can step back and say, well, for a mild attack, maybe two of them will be sufficient or whatever. A component of that in terms of education which is that for both patients and physicians often, the yardstick is not set properly, that most people don't understand that the goal should be two hours pain-free for any attack, that that's the standard for randomized clinical trials in migraine is we want complete relief of all symptoms in under two hours from, in those cases, monotherapies, but certainly that's the target in general. And I have to say that when I say that to patients who've had migraine for 20 or 30 years, okay, so let's just make sure that when you treat an attack, you'll be completely better in two hours, their jaws drop wow, that would be amazing. So that tells me that no one else has said that to them. And that I think is part of the problem. I wanted to share with you a pro tip. This is on our headache card. This is something that you shared with me and something that could come up on a certification uh, exam is there is a questionnaire, a four, uh, four point questionnaire, the MTOQ, which is the monitoring response to therapy. This is a validated questionnaire. Uh, that asks four questions, and 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 I won't get into all the questions, but basically the emphasis is on uh, is is on headache freedom within two hours. Just getting to the mechanisms, we've discussed this in a previous podcast, and we won't uh, we won't go into this now, other than to say there is a cascade of events which seems to be rooted in the trigeminal cervical complex, in the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. Sort of the core of the migraine pain pathway seems to start in that lower brainstem up. Upper cervical spinal cord, and there's all sorts of questions about that connection between that and spreading cortical depression, which is related to aura. But regardless, that leads to a cascade of events that involves a number of different chemicals. And the triple therapy, as you said, gets at a lot of those. So NSAIDs are cyclooxygenase inhibitors, so uh, COX-1 and COX-2, and, uh, and they work specifically probably at the blood vessel level, which is one of the sort of secondary effects that happens uh, from the downstream effects of, of what happens in the trigeminal cervical complex. And also have direct effects on trigeminal activity. So that's the, that's the interesting surprise there, is that there, there's clearly something about the you know, the, the downstream effect on the, the neurovascular and the vascular part of the chain, but they have direct effects on trigeminal activity as well. Uh, triptans, uh, good to know for the tests, are specifically uh, agonists 
agonists of uh, subtypes of serotonin receptors. And this sometimes comes up on exams. The specific subtypes are 5-HT1B and 1D. So B and D are the ones to remember for triptans. And again, that probably acts at the blood vessel level and probably more proximal to that as well. Uh, and then uh, the antiemetics, very important. Again, this relates to the brainstem activation. Uh, the dopaminergic antiemetics are the ones that are effective uh, in, uh, in uh, migraine uh, treatment as, as opposed to uh, the uh, antiemetics that act on the serotonin system or, or, or other things. I just wanna run through the triptans and then we'll move on to other agents. So there, there are a number of triptans. They uh, exist in sort of a spectrum of potency, the duration of action, and their efficacy overall. The most effective, most potent would be subcutaneous sumatriptan that has the fastest onset, it's the shortest acting, but uh, it is the most effective in the treatment of acute headache attacks. It does have the most side effects. And so some people have difficulty tolerating that. And then far on the other end would be the long acting, lower potency triptans, which would include naritriptan and frovatriptan, often more useful for things like perimenstrual migraine or in our uh, pulse therapy because of their long duration of action, but generally less effective in acute headache attack. And then I throw in the middle would be sort of the medium potencies, the elatriptan, rhizotriptan, almatriptan. And then in the higher potency, what you would throw in besides sumatriptan would be zolmatriptan. So just to summarize those, I, I did want to move on to a couple of other things. So tell me about dihydroergotamine. So that works on serotonin as well. And tell me about its role in, in acute headache management. And we have intranasal, we also have intramuscular, and we have IV formulations of that. So wh when do we use DHE? So in practice, the two main times there are for prolonged refractory attacks. So when patients come into our in, uh, infusion clinic for a severe attack that's not responded to their usual therapies or that is just worse than their typical one in the way that they might go to an ER if they didn't have a headache-specific infusion program, we will routinely give intravenous NSAID and dopamine agent and fluids and sometimes magnesium, but then routinely give DHE. In our program, we're limited to using IM DHE, um, but it is uh, certainly close in terms of its potency to the, the IV form. Um, and, and the data that we have there says that one of the hallmarks of triptan therapy is that they are effective early in migraine attacks, that in the peripheral phase of a migraine, a triptan is effective because that's its location of action, but there is no central penetration effectively of triptans. And so once you have developed a degree of secondary sensitization, your, your likelihood of success with triptans falls dramatically. And that transition can be identified clinically by the development of allodynia. So in patients who've had headache for two, three, four, five days, the chance of a triptan working, even if it's subcutaneous, are very low. Whereas DHE is still clearly effective because it has central penetration. It has both direct serotonin agonist activity and antidopaminergic activity and some adrenergic activity. And it seems to be true that both its central penetration and that combination of pharmacologic effects relates to its prolonged efficacy in much later phases of attacks. So just on that basis, it's, and it's an ideal rescue agent. There so, are also patients who are simply 
primarily unresponsive to triptans. I have a subset of patients who have found that even treating attacks early with subcutaneous triptan is not reliably effective, but DHE is. What distinguishes those people physiologically, I'm not clear, but it is sometimes an agent of choice as first line for people who have been consistent triptan non-responsive. One of the newest kids on the block, uh, something that I don't have that much experience with yet, are the is it, do, we talked about this before? Do we pronounce it Gepants or? I, I typically go with Gepants, but yes, I think the I think the the uh, the consensus is moving towards G pants. So uh, G pants or Gepants? This is like GIF versus GIF. Uh, but uh, uh, these uh, so called because they have the the, the that uh, those two syllables at the end of each of the drug names. And how many of those are there? What are the names of these drugs? Right now, there are only two that have been approved for use, uh, Remegapant and Ubrogapant, um, so known uh, by their brand names, Nurtec and Ubrelvi. Those are the two approved oral acute therapies that are CGRP receptor antagonists. Yeah, so these are, these are uh, small molecules that are direct uh, CGRP receptor antagonists. So uh, they, they specifically block CGRP receptors. Uh, and we've talked in previous podcasts about the role of CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, as a chemical that is important in a lot of the aspects of migraine, something that is present uh, in the central nervous system and, and in the periphery in, in people during migraine attacks, also during cluster attacks. And so these molecules were designed to directly attack that. Tell me about the comparison between the GEPHANTS G-pants and triptans in terms of their efficacy against uh, acute migraine attacks? So there's only one phase two trial that actually directly compared oral simitriptan with remegipant and clearly showed that they were, they were comparable at the very least and that not surprisingly sumatriptan had higher side effects. Um, but when you compare apples and oranges in the sense of looking at individual clinical trials, oral triptans or gepants, um, what we find is that the newer agents fall somewhere in the range of clinical efficacy comparable to oral triptans, certainly not as high as the best oral triptan responses that we have seen in individual trials, and by and large, somewhat slower in onset. So the two-hour pain-free responses for both Remegipan and Ubrojapan are on the order of 13 to 15%, something like that, placebo adjusted. Whereas when you go out to four, six, eight hours, those numbers go up to 20 plus. So there's some, there's a clear sign there that there's a slightly delayed uh, benefit, although it's certainly true for the triptans that if you track their responses out further, you also get increased responses with time. That's just the, the nature of the beast. Um, but I think the, you know, the important distinctions there are, it's not as if these new agents are home run. It's not as if they are because they have a different mechanism of action far superior to what we've seen. That is simply not the case. We don't have any trials yet of intravenous or, or subcutaneous GPANs. There is a trial going on right now um, at Biohaven of a nasal formulation that will be called Zavegipan. That will be interesting to see whether an alter, a different formulation has better onset, faster effects. 
Um, but the real advantages here are that these agents are very, very well tolerated, have none of the typical tryptan-associated side effects like chest pressure or wooziness or fatigue. And because they have this different mechanism of action that doesn't involve serotonin agonist activity, do not carry any of the baggage of vasoconstriction that has been associated with the tryptans. I think you well know that I feel that those vasoconstrictive concerns about tryptans have been exaggerated over time. The great majority of them have been um, maybe not debunked, but minimized by follow-up studies that indicate that the, the effects, certainly in terms of the epidemiology, but also physiologically, are not nearly as strong as what people had thought or expected. But it is at least true that you can say that with these new agents, patients were enrolled in trials who had a clear history of cerebrovascular and cardiovascular disease and did well. There's no signal to in indicate that there's any significant risk there. So for the very large group of patients out there who have been traditionally deprived of prescriptions of triptans because of concerns about their cardiovascular risk profile, these new agents are now readily available and can be safely prescribed. So I think that opens the door for a whole lot of migraine patients who up until now have been limited to NSAIDs and whatever else they can get their hands on. And I'll mention briefly, uh, there is a, a new medication with a different mechanism of action uh, in uh, development right now, which is a 5-HT1F uh, agonist. Uh, and I guess this are, these, this is called diptans. Do I have that right? Ditan. Ditan. No, no P. Ditan. So there, and there's one that's been approved, right? So that's, okay. that's, that's lasmiditan or Rayval. Um, which yes, has very attractive properties because although it is a serotonin agonist, the 1F agonist carries none of those vasoconstrictive concerns that tryptans carry. The, the trials that were done with lesmiditan similarly indicate that it has good, but not outstanding two hour pain-free efficacy, but probably better than the two G-pants. Um, the downside is that because there is evidence that the DITANS and in particular lesmiditan has some central penetration, the FDA had required that, there, that the company developing the drug do some driving-related impairment studies, and unfortunately, not surprisingly, found that there was some. So the labeling of lesmiditan says that you must instruct patients not to drive or operate heavy machinery for eight hours after taking the drug. That's a bit of a hurdle. Since the message, generally speaking, when we're treating migraine is we want to restore normal function as fast as possible to have to say to somebody, we want you to get better with your addict, but you can't do any, can't operate any machinery is a bit of a, a sticky point. So I'll just summarize uh, the acute treatments we discussed, uh, the triple therapy and, and mechanisms of action. So triptans, 5-HT1B and 1D. Uh, metoclopramide and proclerperazine as antiemetics are dopamine uh, antagonists. And then NSAIDs, it's cyclooxygenase 1 and 2, uh, non-selective cyclooxygenase 1 and 2. And those are really the foundation, foundational therapies for migraines in the vast majority of patients. Mm -hmm. uh, for refractory headaches and statics migranosis, we have uh, dihydroergotamine, which uh, does have less selective serotonin agonism and uh, has some central penetration, which is what allows it to uh, be more effective uh, beyond the acute sort of peripheral phase, the trigeminal phase of the uh, headache attacks. The newer medications, the GEPANTS or GPANTS, and those are specifically small molecules targeted at the CGRP receptor. 
And uh, finally, the DITANS, uh, one uh, approved and maybe some more in the pathway, which are specifically 5-HT1F. So 5-HT1F, and the potential advantage of that is the central penetration, uh, more efficacy against the sort of central phase uh, of migraine, but because of that uh, may have uh, more central nervous system effects or at least have been shown to have that. So possibly that, that uh, restriction with driving. So let's move on to uh, preventative agents. And I don't wanna to spend too much time on uh, our traditional preventative agents. I'll just sort of run through those and summarize, but they really belong into three classes of, of drugs. We have our antidepressant medications, our antihypertensive medications and our anti-seizure drugs. So these were, you're noticing a theme here. These were drugs that were designed and developed for another indication and then were adapted uh, for migraine prevention. and and we're gonna move into a paradigm shift where we talk about drugs that were specifically designed for migraine. But our traditional agents, the ones we've been using for decades, fall into categories of drugs that were used for something else. And among those drugs, the ones sort of at, at the top in terms of efficacy, tolerability, some combination of those sorts of things, in the anti-epileptic drug category, it's gonna to be topiramate. Uh, typically between 25 and 100 milligrams and probably more often in the higher range, it's going to be more effective. Uh, in the antidepressants, uh, the tricyclic antidepressants probably have the strongest evidence. Amitriptyline, uh, nortriptyline, and protriptyline uh, being uh, those among it. And uh, venlafaxine has some evidence as well among the antidepressants. Among the antihypertensives, probably the non-selective beta blockers like propranolol are, are going to have the best effect. Uh, uh, some of the uh, ARBs, the angiotensin receptor blockers, can play, uh, play a role. Uh, verapamil, not typically effective. So calcium channel blockers, not typically effective for migraine. We've talked about their effectiveness for cluster uh, headache uh, specifically. I don't think I mentioned among the anti-seizure drugs valproic acid, which does have some evidence but we've talked in other podcasts about epilepsy, the risks associated with the use of valproic acid in young women and in women of childbearing potential, particularly, and uh, some of the other long-term side effects of valproic acid, which really I think is gonna be a main limiter to its use. And it's not something that a lot of us prescribe uh, for headache prevention because the, a huge portion of uh, people who suffer from migraine are young women of childbearing potential. So right. I think it, I do think it has a role in the postmenopausal group and and old and men, uh, particularly older men. It 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 clearly has good efficacy when it relates to aura or patients who have aura without headache, all those sorts of things. Um, but absolutely, it, in, in most people, most headache practices, it's simply not used in the women of childbearing potential group for all those reasons. I wanted to move past those uh, to something our listeners might be interested in and is sort of newer uh, within the last two, three years. Uh, and those are the monoclonal antibodies to the CGRP system. There is one that is an antibody to the CGRP receptor, that's arenamab. The way I always remember this is arenamab. The second letter is R, so it's the receptor one. Uh, I, I don't, it helps me. me. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and that's a once monthly injection and a subcutaneous injection. And then uh, are there three that are to the ligand right now yes. approved? That's correct. And those are uh, fremonezumab, uh, which can be either once a month or once every three months. Correct. There is galcanezumab, which is once a month. There's a loading dose, uh, which is a double dose and then, and then monthly after that. And then there's uh, eptonezumab, 
which is go. intravenous. Every three months also. Every three right. months. So tell me a little bit about uh, the role of these medications in headache, common side effects, and sort of how you approach the use of these medications. Well, so partly as a segue from the discussion about traditionals, keep in mind that, you know, one of the pieces of data about the existing therapies prior to the CGRP era is that when people looked at the simple question of compliance, if you look at all of the oral preventive therapies that are prescribed for migraine and look six months down the line and say, what percentage of patients are taking these drugs six months after they prescribe, the numbers are ghastly. It's like 15%. So some combination of telling people, I'm gonna give you a drug that was designed for another disease, it's gonna take months to titrate it up, we won't know what the answer is, and there are side effects, has basically led people to vote with their feet and say, no thanks. It's only with really vigorous encouragement and regular contact and clear discussion about the benefits and risk and all that, that people will even continue to take them. Whereas now we're talking about an era of a single dose once a month of a drug that was designed based on our understanding of the physiology of migraine that has excellent clinical benefits and minimal side effects, that's the take-home lesson. So the clinical trial programs for all of these agents says the acute effects are minimal. There are some injection site reactions for the subcutaneous agents that are, tend to be uh, brief and uh, self-limited. Um, there are very rare examples, but there are some of hypersensitivity reactions to monoclonal therapies of, for any disease, and those that's included here, but those have thankfully been rare. There is some association of constipation. It clearly exists with arenimab. We certainly see examples of this with uh, galcanizumab, and in fact, in Europe, constipation is a listed side effect for galcanizumab, which it isn't here. Um, there are some cases of myalgias and arthralgias that have led to discontinuation, but all of those are relatively rare. We're talking two, 3% tops. So compared to the kinds of things we're used to with these other agents like cognitive impairment and tremor and weight loss and weight gain and hair loss and all those things that we have learned to accommodate with the oral therapies, the side effect profiles here are minimal and there's really no significant safety concern at all. Um, in the case of the IV formulation, eptinizumab, there's some sort of upper respiratory symptoms that occur in a small percentage of patients initially, and that's about it. So very tolerable, easy to administer. Uh, the first three agents, the subcutaneous ones, can be done by patients at home. Some of them prefer to come into the office and get their injections supervised fine. And now we have the option of an IV therapy, eptinizumab, uh, given as an infusion in the office, takes about half an hour. The entire contact is brief. Um, and, and in all of these, but particularly with eptinezumab, part of what's striking is that the onset of effect is very rapid. Even with the subcutaneous agents, you see a clear signal for significant reduction of headache activity in a week uh, and possibly within that. And with eptinezumab, there are now published studies showing that the effect actually begins within 24 hours that patients who respond with a 50% or greater reduction already show that much reduction in the likelihood of headache within a day of infusion. So to be able to say to people, I wanna give you a therapy that will, if it works, will work extremely quickly. None of this having to work your way up to a potentially effective dose over weeks or months business. It's try this and if it works, you're good to go. That's a remarkable game-changing discussion to have. So um, 
the last thing I'll say about preventative therapy. So uh, coming down the pike, we uh, it's it's not yet approved in the United States would be an oral uh, CGRP receptor antagonist. So it would Correct. be an oral Gepant, uh, yes, basically, that would be used for headache prevention. So something to keep on our, our radar. Yep. Uh, and then always think in somebody with autonomic symptoms about an indomethacin trial. We've discussed uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. Uh, just for, for our listeners, the ones that respond uh, most prominently to indomethacin are going to be the hemicranias, uh, paroxysmal hemicrania and hemicrania continua. And six, those associated with exercise, uh, sexual activity, et cetera, can also respond to indomethacin. Um, but, but sometimes the, the uh, patients don't read the textbooks uh, and uh, an indomethacin trial in somebody with refractory migraine may be helpful in some cases. Agreed. I'm going to move on to interventions. Uh, and uh, one, I think, important point, botulinum toxin is uh, an important uh, treatment. But a, a misunderstanding I sometimes come across among learners is that botulinum toxin has only been shown to be effective for chronic migraine, uh, the treatment of chronic migraine, and not for episodic migraine. Uh, can you speak to the distinction between chronic migraine and episodic migraine and how those are defined? Well, that's so the easy part is simply that that was a somewhat arbitrary distinction that basically is an operational statement that headache more than half the time is chronic and headache less than half the time is episodic. So if you have less than 15 headache days a month, of which most are migraine, you are considered episodic. But if you have 15 days or more of headache a month, at least half of which are clearly migraine, we, we call that chronic. So somewhat different from what patients often interpret, which is I've had a headache for a long time, so I have chronic migraine, perfectly reasonable interpretation of the term, but not its intended meaning. And so, yes, there had been about 10 years of trials of botulinum toxin starting after 2000, looking at where it would be most effective in episodic migraine and so-called tension type headache, not particularly effective, but finally, a systematic whole head uh, injection approach for chronic migraine did produce a real clinical signal. Tell me, tell me about the role of things like nerve blocks uh, in the head and neck, uh, occipital nerve injections. These are things that are available to many of our patients. When, when do you think those are most useful and, and where do you see their role? So, the, the jury is still out, but I would say in our practice and in most practices, the primary uh, role for nerve, uh, cranial nerve blocks has been in acute refractory headache. So somebody comes in with prolonged headache and in combination with some IV therapies of some kind, they will often get a combination of occipital, auriculotemporal, supraorbital nerve blocks. I tend to do what we would call full head blocks, all three of those sets of nerves in most patients, unless their pain is clearly restricted to only occipital or only frontal. But even then we have examples of both trials in cluster and migraine showing that anterior pain responds to occipital nerve injection, having to going back, you know, harking back to what you mentioned before about the cervical trigeminal system. But as a rule, these are used in acute. There are clearly some patients who uh, we follow that will respond to periodic nerve blocks as a preventive therapy. I don't think there's any evidence yet to indicate how to identify those patients in advance, but there are clearly people who say, I get a set of nerve blocks and I'm good to go for weeks or a month or so. And so they routinely 
come back on a regular schedule and do well. Not sure what the difference is in those patients, but there are some like that, but I'd say it's a relatively small percentage. And tell me about sphenopalatine ganglion block. So this is uh, something that's been I was made newly aware of within the last few years. And as I understand, it's a, an injection, uh, the strategy is through the nose and an injection of, of lidocaine, a local anesthetic that, uh, that can block the sphenopalatine ganglion uh, just within, I guess, the nasopharynx. So tell me about its role and, uh, and when you use that. So I have to say, I, I'm using less of that than I was a couple of years ago when, it, when these new devices were first introduced that promoted the idea that you could reliably anesthetize the sphenopalatine ganglion through the nose. So the idea that yes, there is just behind the middle turbinate, a small fossa that is just on the other side of the sphenopalatine fossa in the cranial, the facial cranial structure is an attractive notion because up until then, the only way to access that fossa was a needle through the cheek, which is an unpleasant and uh, probably scary procedure. So the concept that you could provide reliable anesthesia of the SPG is attractive, but in practice, I have found that it's only rarely a particularly reliable addition and certainly very rarely a monotherapy or a single intervention of great use. There was a paper just a couple of years ago that made the point that while we are told that the basis of this intervention is that there's only about a millimeter or so between the nasal mucosa and the SPG fossa, turns out those studies were based on cadaver studies about 100 years ago. And then when you look at a series of MR images, what you get is more like a centimeter. Mm. That leads some credence to the idea that it's probably not going to be the most reliable approach. I think there are patients who do respond, whatever that says about their anatomy, um, but it has not been a big, it has not been overall what I would call a game changer. And, and the other thing within sort of the interventional world uh, that, uh, that we won't get into uh, because it's, it's emerging and complex, uh, but something for learners to have on their radar is uh, the possibility of spontaneous cerebrospinal fluid leaks and, and spontaneous intracranial hypotension is something that, that is higher on our radar with people with chronic and refractory headaches uh, with migraine features sometimes preceded by trauma or or, uh, uh, procedures that involve uh, epidural anesthesia and things like that, but sometimes uh, with no obvious provoking event and uh, something to think about in people with postural headaches, in uh, people with uh, new onset refractory headaches, probably something that's a diagnostic consideration in the new daily persistent headache uh, population, for example. Absolutely. Uh, and, And diagnosis can be hard. It can involve uh, CT, myelogram, uh, empiric blood patches, things like that. So our learners may see questions about postural headaches or new daily uh, persistent headache, uh, and they do want to think about the possibility of spontaneous intracranial hypotension and spontaneous CSF leaks. And just this week, there's an excellent review that was published in Neurology Clinical Practice about just that topic that might be worth a look. Ah, that's excellent to point our listeners. 
Well, Chris, this was wonderful. Uh, there's a lot new. Uh, I'm sure we've missed some things, but I did want to cover the spectrum of treatment for migraine specifically, uh, the acute therapies, the preventatives, and then some of the interventions that people like you are doing. Of course, in a short podcast, it's not possible to be completely comprehensive. And I know we didn't discuss the neurostimulation devices, for example, Perhaps that's something that we can cover in another session. Uh, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I think this will be a very helpful review for our listeners. I'm always grateful for the opportunity, Jeremy. Thanks very much.